Every minute of Narrative's reporting, every story that we break is made possible by our patrons. You too can become a patron by joining at patreon.com forward slash narratives. Narrative, where truth lives. There's a lot going on in tonight's show, and I think you'll agree that the announcement yesterday by Ron DeSantis was was quite stunning in that in its boldness, in its fakery, but also in its clear ties to the espionage operation, which has been dogging America for the last few years, mainly one out of Saudi Arabia. Of course, now Saudi Arabia has many partners in that. They have the Chinese cartels, they have the Israeli cartels, but that grouping, as we've been calling them, the enemies of democracy here on narrative, are clearly the real challenge to America's democracy going forward because of their emboldening of the GOP in a way that is both anti-democratic and clearly about to potentially damage the the credit and standing of the United States by messing with the default and the credit default of this country. So a, a lot going on in that front, but that's not our big story tonight. You've all forgotten about the John Durham report more than a week ago, but I spent some time reading it, as did many of you at home. I hope you enjoyed the 390 pages. Those 390 pages cost six and a half million dollars to produce. And it is interesting. You get in the Durham report a pretty thorough look at everything that happened in the 2016 election investigation at the FBI regarding Donald Trump. You get a little bit of a look at what happened with Hillary Clinton. But if you're in a forest and you're looking at the trees, you can identify the trees. But if you just step back a little bit further, you realize there's much more going on than just the trees. And sometimes when special counsels and prosecutors do their investigations, they like to focus on things that are pretty easy for them to understand, and that is the trees are in front of them. They don't go into the more complex issues of which foreign powers might be funding the operational espionage psyops that might be happening. And in fact, it's in the big picture that you find the real protagonists, the real people who are causing the challenges to the elections themselves. The FBI's handling of key aspects of the case was seriously deficient, Durham wrote, causing the agency severe reputational harm. That failure could have been prevented if the FBI employees hadn't embraced seriously flawed information and instead followed their own principles regarding objectivity and integrity, the report said. As examples of confirmation bias by the FBI, Durham cites the FBI decision to go forward with the probe despite a complete lack of information from the intelligence community that corroborated the hypothesis upon which the Crossfire Hurricane investigation was predicated. Wow, what a sentence. So all of that looks terrible. It just looks like the people at the AFBI did an awful job investigating all the information they had in that very crucial case, in that case involving you know, Donald Trump and the Steele dossier and everything that entailed. And then, of course, well, the initial predicate for the starting of Crossfire Hurricane, which was a complaint or this information provided them by George Papadopoulos. Now, poor George Papadopoulos, you'll remember, is a He's an interesting dude. He comes out of nowhere. He was a, a foreign policy advisor in the early stages of the Trump administration there. So he certainly had some cachet. George Papadopoulos turns out to be a very key character in what went wrong in the 2016 investigation. So according to John Durham, what he is saying basically is that George Papadopoulos provided this false information, this completely made up information that was not verified at all by the people at the FBI and that they just used that as a predicate for getting all sorts of permissions to spy 
on the likes of Fabdopoulos, but also on Manafort, Roger Stone, and also Page. So what we're talking about here is a pretty significant allegation here, that the case itself, the Crossfire Hurricane investigation, which was devised to basically figure out if Donald Trump and Russia had colluded on anything. Well, it turns out that according to the special counsel, it was not the right information. It was not verified enough. It was not checked out enough to warrant this kind of investigation, full-scale investigation that the FBI launched under Andy McCabe at that point. So let's take a look then at what we know, at least in narratives investigation, but also verified by some of the information that John Durham has provided us, but also out of the internal investigation by the IG and Mueller and the investigation provided to us by the Senate committee, the Senate Intelligence Committee. This is sort of the chain of possession, if you will, of that entire narrative, I hate to use that word, but there it is, that uh, involved the George Papadopoulos revelations. So it started off with, in April 2016, George is having a meeting with a guy named Joseph Mafsud, who's a, a Cypriot, I think, who's a Cypriot professor. And he discusses with him that there are thousands of emails of Clintons connected to her that the Trump campaign via the Russians already has. So already floating in April 2016, that there was these missing emails, these 30,000 missing emails, which we kept hearing Donald Trump talk about throughout the entire election campaign. This was planted by Joseph Mifsud. Mifsud tells George Papadopoulos this. Papadopoulos, who then has a meeting with Alex Downer, who's the High Commissioner of Australia in London. So he's the, basically the Australian ambassador in London. And he reveals all the same information that he got from Joseph Mifsud about the Trump campaign having all this dirt on Hillary Clinton. And then Alex Downer files a complaint. He goes to the, the legal attache in the US embassy, I believe in Australia, could have been in London, I'm not sure. And he reveals more information about the Downer and Papadopoulos meeting. And he tells the legal attache this because the legal attache is dotted lined into the FBI. And in fact, that legal attache knew someone at the Philadelphia office of counterintelligence. So she called him or he called him and they were referred to the supervising agent for counterintelligence, Charles McGonigal. We'll explain to you in a bit who Charles McGonigal is if you've forgotten already. He's quite a well-known, now twice indicted FBI agent who's indicted for working for Oleg Deripaska post-2018, but also for having ties to Russians all the way through his time in the FBI, at least in the last few years of his time in the FBI. But mostly it was through the Albanians that he had ties with the Russians. But today we're going to prove that in fact he had ties with Oleg Deripaska all the way from 2016, 2015. So just to recap here, the chain of possession around George Papadopoulos was something like this. Joseph Mifsud gives the information first to George Papadopoulos in April 2016. In that information, it's revealed that the Trump campaign has dirt on Hillary Clinton and thousands of emails connected to her. And then George Papadopoulos reveals the same information at a bar to Alex Downer, the Australian High Commissioner who is in London, and they meet at a bar in London. The Australian High Commissioner reports this information back to his home base, but also to the legal attaché at a US embassy, and then reveals the same information via the legal attaché to the FBI through first the Philadelphia Counterintelligence Division, and finally the supervising agent of, in charge of counterintelligence, Charles McGonigal who was in doing that job in DC at the time. So it's quite a chain of possession. Now, two things to note here. George Papadopoulos is often referred to as many things, but he's very rarely referred to as an Israeli agent. But 
in, in the Mueller report, there is clear evidence that Mueller was considering charging or at least labeling George Papadopoulos as an Israeli agent. He chose not to, but it doesn't explain why. Was it just because he wasn't allowed to because of the limitations of the Mueller report? Or was George Papadopoulos somehow able to obscure the reality of what he was doing? Or maybe he wasn't an Israeli agent. But by his own words, he told the Jerusalem Post that the Mueller investigation investigation into him involved more than just the Russian ties that he might have had, but really about the Israel ties. So that's interesting that Mueller was investigating Israel as a possible source for the original information that launched the Crossfire Hurricane investigation. Because we know George Papadopoulos was the one who, whose, in, whose information was the reason Crossfire Hurricane was launched. It was this information that the Trump campaign had thousands of emails out there and that they were ready to deploy that against Hillary Clinton throughout the election campaign. And in fact, Papadopoulos was labeled as a possible agent in the Mueller report, but ultimately never confirmed as an agent for the Israelis. But here he is confirming to the Jerusalem Post that's in fact, he had worked for the Israelis and that was part of the investigation that was going on. So that's the one end of this chain of possession that we've been talking about here. There's George Papadopoulos, now possibly an Israeli agent, possibly working with this Cypriot guy, possibly working with this Australian, to deliver this information to the FBI, which is already likely tainted information from an operational point of view. There's very little to verify it. It's just word of mouth, it's gossip, and it certainly does not qualify, according to Durham and anyone else really, as the kind of thing that you would launch a major counterintelligence investigation on. And then it lands with Charles McGonigal. Now, Charles McGonigal himself has connections to the Israelis. Now, even though he is currently under investigation for his work that he's done with Deri Pasca, the Russian oligarch, but also the work he's done with the Albanian Prime Minister, Prime Minister Rama, there is plenty of evidence now forming, and this is new evidence you've not seen before, that links Mr. McGonigal to a friend of Benjamin Netanyahu and a very well-known operative in the world of espionage. This is a man that many people fear. He's considered a bully. He's considered a threat to anyone who tries to report on him. He often comes out at them very hard. Now, he has some childhood or early life connections to Benjamin Netanyahu. He is apparently considered amongst the fixers in Benjamin Netanyahu's world. He has various business interests, which are interesting on their own. And according to one man that we've heard from before in our investigations and our continued investigations into what's been happening since 2016, that man is Everett Stern. You might remember Everett Stern was blowing the whistle, or apparently said he was blowing the whistle on the, the efforts of Michael Flynn to launch some sort of counterinsurgency in the United States. And Everett Stern, who was then standing for senator in Pennsylvania, blew the whistle on Flynn and his group, were threatening the state and other legislatures in trying to force them to vote against the election results when those election results came out. So out of nowhere, Everett Stern emerges a couple of weeks ago with new information about Charlie McGonigal. And what information does he have on Charlie McGonigal that is really interesting is, and this will blow your mind a little bit, it did mine, and I'm not vouching for this being 100% credible, but I have no reason to disbelieve it either. So take it for what it's worth. This is Everett Stern's documentation. And he mentions two things that are very important here. First thing he says is that, that Charles McGonigal was Stern's FBI personal of contact. So when you become an informant, I guess, in the FBI, you get given a 
person, a point of contact, a person of contact. And in his case, it was Charles McGonagall, which we now know may have been at a time when McGonagall may have been corrupted, maybe corrupted by the Albanians or may have been corrupted by Deripaska, certainly by Deripaska in the later stages of his time at the FBI. So if Charles McGonagall is, is the point of contact for, for Stern, that's interesting for Stern on two levels because he points out that he, he has this one email he has from McGonagall. And one of the other things that Everett has been involved in his life is being a whistleblower at the HSBC trials. And he says here, Everett, this is from Charles McGonagall, apparently, the only lawyer present will be a prosecutor. There are no threat to you or your confidentiality. We need the prosecutor who will be familiar with the prior DPA. You can speak freely and you will be welcomed by our team. Sent on March 23rd, 2018, which is towards the end of Mr. McGonagall's term at the FBI. And what they're saying is they're going to have a second bash at the HSBC investigation that they want to see if they can go at it again and see if they can dig out any more criminal activity. And they'd like Everett Stern to meet with this prosecutor and share this information. I can imagine Everett Stern today must be thinking, did I actually meet with the prosecutor or did I give my information to the guy who's representing Oleg Deripaska? Because it's quite possible that that latest scenario is the true one, that he did, in fact, give Charles McGonagall the information that ultimately landed up with Oleg Deripaska. It's certainly not what Everett Stern would have thought he was doing, but it may be the result of what actually transpired. That's one piece of evidence that he has. It certainly confirms in my mind that Everett does have a relationship with Charles McGonigal and that Charlie McGonigal was his point of contact, was his protector at the FBI when Everett Stern was being a whistleblower. Let's take a look at part two of this question. So this other document that Everett has out today, this is now from March 25th, 2018. Everett, you can forward any and all information my way as a POC. Thanks for your support and willingness to provide such lead intelligence to the FBI. So feel free to forward any information you think would be of value to me, and I'll ensure it is auctioned. He means, he means actioned, but it's funny that he says auctioned there because, as we pointed out, he's involved in some pretty unusual activity in Albania where oil auctions for oil fields have been directed his way via his business associates there, a guy named Sefteg Distari, and also Mr. Distari's other business partner, who is a former FBI agent himself, a man by the name of Mark Rossini. And we'll see Mark Rossini back in this original chart that we had for you here. That's a Stern down on the left, tied to McGonagall, who's his point of contact. And then you see Rossini, he's just above there. He's a former FBI agent who also seems to have gone rogue, maybe working for Deripaska, but almost certainly working for Walter Soriano. That's Baby Netanyahu's old friend and someone who people on his campaign have described as one of their fixers. Now, this is interesting, but not brand new information. We've known for a while now that McGonagall and Rossini were business partners with Sheftek Dizdari in a legal firm, an investigation and legal firm in 2018, 2019, which many people believe was designed to provide cover for illegal oil shipments that were going to come out of Russia to the rest of the world and bypassing U.S. sanctions. That's what McGonagall and Rossini are suspected they were going to be doing. Were they doing it for Soriano? It's unclear. But what Stern also points out, which is interesting because in his time as being an informant on various things, Everett Stern also spent some time working for Mr. Soriano. And not only Mr. Soriano, Mr. Soriano and their client, Mr. Deripaska. So this is very vital new information we now get from Everett Stern that for the first time we're talking about here tonight is that Walter Soriano 
and Alec Deripaska was, were in business together, meaning that Deripaska was the client and Soriano was the owner of this company that handled these kind of investigations on a private basis for people like Oleg Deripaska. They used people like Mark Rossini, a former FBI agent, and they used people like Charles McGonigal, who was probably introduced to Soriano through, through Rossini, but he may have been introduced to Soriano through Deripaska as well, because let's be honest, we already know that McGonigal was knee-deep in Deripaska's illegal bribery payments to him, or alleged illegal bribery payments to him. So that is one way of changing the story dynamic completely. Why are we going here? Why are we suddenly deviating from telling you about what Durham did in 2016 and his investigation in 2016? It's because back to the original allegation that Durham was making, that the information that came from George Papadopoulos wasn't to be trusted, wasn't the right kind of information, wasn't the information that was necessary to launch an investigation. Well, it's interesting that Mueller thought that Papadopoulos was an Israeli agent. And it's interesting that on the receiving end of all of that, Charlie McGonigal was receiving that information at the FBI and could have elevated it or not elevated it to the kind of information that may have caused a predicate for an investigation. But regardless of the fact, we now know as well that uh, McGonigal was tied to Danny Pasca, but also potentially here, according to Everett Stern, tied to Walter Soriano, who himself is tied to the Prime Minister of Israel, or allegedly was tied to the Israeli Prime Minister many years ago. This is, in the world of uh, espionage, quite big news, although it may not mean that much to you at home today. It's one certainly worth watching, because the continued, the continued emphasis here is on whether that information in 2016 that led up to Jim Comey and the email searches and all that stuff that ultimately wrecked Hillary Clinton's chances of becoming President of the United States. Well, all of that came from the impetus of this one piece of news that came from George Papadopoulos, that the Trump campaign had access to those emails. It's in April that they got news of that, and that's what launched the investigation. It also gave you know complete life to this idea that these emails were out there. Before that, were the emails out there? Did, what exactly did they get from the DNC hack? No one was really sure. It was being handled by McGonigal, but not very well. It was all slow. The investigation on both sides was being met with distrust on both sides. But what's clear to me is that the email story really took shape, really became alive when George Papadopoulos first suggested the Trump campaign may have access to those 30,000 emails. And then you see a summer all about her emails. From that launch of that campaign idea of the emails, came this hack of the DNC and the DC servers, which again, were involving her emails. Did they able to, were they able to get her emails? We have Comey clearing Clinton in an original emails investigation. This is in July 5th. That's the first time there's an investigation into, into Hillary Clinton's emails. And then WikiLeaks releases the first hacked Clinton emails, and they do so right after all these DNC emails, I should say. George Papadopoulos' tip finally reaches Charlie McGonigal in July. So you've got May all the way to the end of July that they're busy looking at these hacks into the DNC, claims of, of Hillary Clinton emails being out there. WikiLeaks publishes some DNC emails, and then finally it becomes an active piece of investigation that arrives at Charlie McGonigal's desk. Why are we fretting over the use of this word email? Why is this whole summer campaign now looking like it's one big campaign to cement in people's mind that Hillary Clinton was bad with her emails, that her servers were somehow 
incorrectly managed. In fact, an entire FBI investigation was based on this idea that the Trump campaign had these emails, even though it's unlikely they had these 30,000 lost emails. They did have emails from the DNC. But you could see how the actual fire in the story would not have existed if George Papadopoulos, a man that Robert Mueller suspected was an Israeli spy, would have been there at the very beginning to say, here's thousands of, of emails that are potentially in the Trump campaign hands. So let's quickly look at the rest of the summer because but her emails did not end just there all the way through the election season into October. And October 4th, this is when McGonigal was announced as a transfer to his new office in New York, where he moved from headquarters to New York. And then October 7th, the first Clinton e emails are published, the DNC emails are published after the poster tape is released. And then there's a second debate. And remember, the second debate was all about emails and about how she could not be trusted and about how Donald Trump was going to launch an investigation through his AG to make sure that she would be prosecuted for all the crimes that happened during her time there. It sounds ridiculous now, knowing what we know about all this information. But at the time, this was the kind of stuff we'd not really heard before. I didn't think I'd say this, but I'm going to say it. And I hate to say it. If I win, I am going to instruct my attorney general to get a special prosecutor to look into your situation because there has never been so many lies, so much deception. There has never been anything like it. And we're going to have a special prosecutor. When I speak, I go out and speak. The people of this country are furious. In my opinion, the people that have been long-term workers at the FBI are furious. There has never been anything like this where emails and you get a subpoena, you get a subpoena, and after getting the subpoena, you delete 33,000 emails. And then you acid wash them or bleach them, as you would say, a very expensive process. The allegations are very specific there by Donald Trump. He mentions the people at the FBI office, which is interesting because they're the ones who've been fomenting the story and making it into a story. And so you've got a, a buildup of a narrative there that involves the FBI, whether they were willingly able to see that they were doing this or whether they were just being co-opted by this information and the likes of Charlie McGonigal pushing them along. Or did Jim Comey really know all this? Did he know he was being used in a narrative? Did McCabe know he was being used in a narrative? Who knows? But what's clear is that both on the delivery end of that, of that investigation and on the actual events where, when it happened, it all ultimately goes back to Israeli intelligence or possible Israeli intelligence involvement. And that, that's interesting and certainly requires a lot of careful investigation by the people who do know this stuff. I got to say, I don't know any more than what I can read in open source information. So when Robert Mueller says George Papadopoulos is a a possible agent of Israel? Well, that's all I can have. That's all the information I have. I don't know if George Papadopoulos is. Do I know Charlie McGonigal was involved with Oleg Deripaska? Absolutely. It seems to me like he was involved with Oleg Deripaska. The court case is, is still ongoing. We aren't 100% sure that he's done that because the court has not found him guilty of any of that. And maybe if, if he didn't find him guilty, we are almost I'm sure. I don't think anyone's disputing the fact that he received a lot of money from Oleg Deripaska. Where it's a little bit more blurry, is what is his connection with Walter Soriano? Or Everett Stern suggests that his own relationship with Walter Soriano and Oleg Deripaska dates back to preceding 2018, almost to 2016. And we'll explain to you in just a few minutes about how that developed. But does that mean that just because Mark Rossini was there, that there is any connection between McGonigal and Walter Soriano? 
No, that does not mean that. It could be that there is some connection there. And that would put potentially two FBI officials, maybe four FBI officials, as we've reported before, in the ambit of both Russian and or Israeli intelligence. And of course, maybe it doesn't even matter because the two groups work together. And one of the things to take away from all of this is that the Russian influence of Israeli intelligence and vice versa is quite large. And so when you see an operation like this taking place, and maybe one side is doing something while the other side is doing something else, but they each provide cover for each other. In other words, it helps Israel to go out there and say, hey, it was the Russians who did this, it was the Russians who did it, because they know there's not enough actual intelligence, not enough evidence out there to prove that the Russians did it themselves. Because in fact, the Israelis and the Russians may have done it together. And in fact, in that case, the same thing happened the other way around. The Russians could say, well, it's not us, it's the Chinese or whomever. It's a great way for them to all hide what really went on. And that basically is that they're all coordinating this attack on democracy, which they have done since 2016, but probably started planning way, way earlier. It does remind me a little bit, and I will draw this inference to what happened in in 9-11, where again, there seems to be multiple parties were involved in something, but you know each party likes to blame the other party. So you get a lot of emphasis on the Saudis being responsible for 9-11. And of course, there is evidence to suggest that they were somehow involved in 9-11. But you don't get as much about Israel's involvement in 9-11, even though there is some evidence or, or some elements within Israel's uh, intelligence services or government were involved in 9-11. And you just don't get that because the story about Saudi Arabia is so much more pervasive. In fact, one of the people who's perpetuating that story out there is that same Mark Rossini, the same guy I showed you earlier on, who was working with Walter Soriano, who is a potential ally to Bibi Netanyahu and potentially a fixer for Bibi Netanyahu. In this case, it may be that Mark Rossini and, uh, and Walter Soriano were working on matters for Teddy Pasca, which involved you know, other things. The other missions, they did not necessarily work together on anything like 9-11 or anything like that. But it sure is interesting that it's Mark Rossini who's out there a lot of the time talking about the Saudi involvement in 9-11. And he has a clip of him doing some of this. I'm not going to give you the whole, the whole thing here because it really is a conversation for, the, for another day. But just so you can get a sense of who Mark Rossini is, former FBI agent involved in the McGonagall affair, also potentially involved in releasing some information now about what happened in 9-11, but also working for Walter Soriano and potentially Oleg Deripaska during this whole period of time. So let me play some of Rossini here. Omar Abayomi was a Saudi agent, okay? You can ham and haw and try to split legal definitions and all that BS and try to put up a wall and defend it. He was an agent of the Saudi government, okay? So was Omar Thierry, Thirari, I can't pronounce his term correctly, who was in the actual Saudi consulate. In, in Los Angeles, they were Saudi operatives put in America by the Saudi government to monitor dissident Saudis, okay, and to do whatever being the Saudi government wanted. And of course, being the Saudi government, our government, of course, turned a blind eye and let them operate as they could or would or should because of the economic and political realities of the Middle East. That's just the bottom line. So cut to the chase, stop the bullshit, stop the candy ass pampering. It is what it is. That's who Omar Abraham was. That's who he still is. And he's in Saudi Arabia, untouchable, and we can't get to him. And he'll never come to America and tell the truth. That is a show unto itself, and we should do that show in the future. But it is clear that there is there was Saudi involvement in 9-11. We know that now. We also know, 
as of the purchase of Twitter for $44 billion a few months ago, that there's Saudi involvement in the purchase of Twitter. And we know that there is potentially Israeli and Russian involvement in the, the soiling of the case, if you will, in the 2016 election, the election that ultimately gave Donald Trump his victory over Hillary Clinton, that there was an espionage operation, it seems like, within the FBI to try and bring this email topic to life. So there was a real narrative there that they could then latch an investigation on. And then the closing days of the election campaign, Jim Comey would be out there revealing the final details of his findings, because I forgot to mention this, of course, the clincher of all of this is what happened in the, towards November, which is when Aberdeen's husband, Anthony Weiner, is his laptop is discovered. And lo and behold, on that laptop are copies of all these emails already previously vetted. But just the fact that they were there was enough of a predicate for Jim Comey to then go and say, I'm reopening the investigation into Hillary Clinton. And then a few days later said there was nothing there. But that gap of time allowed enough people in the electorate to become certain that that Hillary Clinton was, was somehow corrupted, was somehow not telling the truth about these emails. All of it was created out of the speculation of the FBI, the not very good validation of information by the FBI, and this constant flow of emails by Donald Trump, but also from the FBI that kept showing up, whether it was on October 28th, there where you see Jim Comey writing a letter to Congress saying, hey, I'm reopening the investigation. Uh, all the way to the very, very end, and November 4th is when Peter Strzok finally interviewed Hillary Clinton, and she was finally cleared on election eve. But of course, it was too late then. By that time, Donald Trump had built enough momentum and Hillary's career had come to a crashing halt. And that is, in fact, why most people believe that Donald Trump won the election on November 6th. So, November 8, 2016, I think I should say. Now, what's, what am I getting at here? Why am I lumping all these things together? I, on this show and in many other places, have referred to what I call the enemies of democracy as a group of nations, a group of networks, a rich groups of influences around the world who are really intent on destroying democracy. They involve countries that are obvious and some countries that are not so obvious. Certainly Iran, China, Israel, to some extent, under the leadership of Bibi Netanyahu, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Egypt. All of these have shown that they've had some interest in joining the enemies of democracy. At home, we've had these seditionist groups. We've had these Council for National Policy. We've had all these other interesting groups that are funded by mysterious sources. And then all these operatives, the like of Eric Prince and, and those kinds of people, Michael Flynn, causing psyops and all sorts of strange events to happen in the United States. All of this has led me many years ago to call this the enemies of democracy. If you're going to win a war, you have to know who your enemy is. And uh, I needed some sort of framework to, to frame all these different parties in. And that's what I came up with, the enemies of democracy. It also means that we're in a war. We're in a war that's an ideological war. It's a war that really will determine whether we will continue to have the kinds of freedoms and rights we all love so much going forward. And it's a war that, on the surface of it, you'd think, well, it's just a war between Democrats and Republicans. But it's not just a war between Democrats and Republicans. It's a war between Democrats and Republicans who have all these other incredibly wealthy nations backing them, who have the likes of Saudi Arabia, who have the likes of UAE backing them, who have the ability to go and spend $45 billion to just buy Twitter and turn it private just because, so they can take people like me off the air. Yeah, I would have gone for a lot less than $45 billion. <laughs> that was the intention. 
But of course, they wanted the whole kit and caboodle. What they wanted to do is to drive narratives into the minds of Americans, like the email one we saw in 2016. What they want to do is to make sure that Americans are so confused or there is enough suspicious content out there that makes Joe Biden look like he's a criminal by the time we get to next year's elections. That is their intent. That is what they're trying to do. You can see it in every move that Elon Musk is trying to make. There's no truth to any of that. But, you know, if you create enough smoke, as they did in 2016 with the emails, well, they can create enough smoke in 2024. Now that they have Twitter, which they didn't have in 2016 and didn't have in 2020, that was the one reason they were not able to win those elections in 2020. At least they weren't able to win those elections. And why there was such a formidable groundswell of grassroots investigators and and, uh, researchers that were able to fight back against the machine in 2016 and 2018. Well, now here we are in 2024 and we're facing it all again, only we no longer have Twitter. So let that sink in. The situation is still quite dire when you look at it that way. The enemies of democracy have a lot of money, they have a lot of resources, and they certainly have some very passionate members among them. Is that enough? Is that enough to end democracy in America? Well, the next year we'll tell that story very clearly. And uh, one thing I can tell you is on the GOP side, there is nothing really separating Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump. These two are basically the same candidates run by the same owners. They have slightly ideological differences, but really they are the same being. And they'll be run into power using millions and millions of dollars And Donald Trump will either go to jail or somehow make a deal to avoid going to jail. And Ron DeSantis will be left as the, potentially as the candidate who might become president of the United States. And one of the key things that Ron DeSantis wants, one of the key things that his funders want him to want is an end to America's involvement in Ukraine, which would mean leaving the Ukrainian people stranded alone in the world while Russia basically bombards them, takes them over and ends their hopes and dreams of democracy. That's really the end goal here for these foreign entities that are running our political party, the Republican Party, and why it is such a danger to American politics that we have people like Elon Musk representing foreign money, deciding who gets to broadcast, who gets to speak at the town square on on Twitter. It's fundamentally a massive challenge to who we are as a people, and we can't ignore it. We might think, hey, it's just freedom of speech, but go to another website, go to a different platform. It doesn't work like that. You know that. There is only one platform that matters. And right now, that platform is Twitter. They are in control of that platform, meaning they are in control of the conversation that we're having all the way into the next election in 2024. Boy, it's been a lot to take in today. And I could go on. And I'm sure there's charts here that I have not shown you. But I'm going to stop there because I know what we've done today is taken in a lot of disparate sources of information and try to connect the dots. Some of these may not be perfect. I'm not pretending that I have more information than is available in the public eye. I am saying that it is interesting to me that one of the things that Durham picks apart is George Papadopoulos' information and how it became the predicate for Crossfire Hurricane and how we know that Mueller himself said that George Papadopoulos might be an Israeli agent. And we know as well that that chain of command went from George Papadopoulos all the way to Charles McGonigal and then ultimately that Charles McGonigal is himself in a lot of deep trouble because of his relationships with Oleg Deripaska, the Albanians, and potentially Walter Soriano, the Israeli fixer, or was the Israeli fixer for Benjamin Netanyahu, the Israeli prime minister. So now you know why they don't love me on Twitter, because we bring you the truth. 
our narrative. Our goal here has always been to bring you the truth. We've spent countless years, now seven years and many countless hours, investigating this territory over and over again, making sure that we are the ones that provide you with the truth about what happened in 2016 or at any other time in the war of democracy. I take great pride in the work we've done. It is a great struggle to do this work against the people who are constantly trying to shut us down, whether it's Elon Musk or others in the world. It, I know you're tired of hearing about it, but it's just the reality of it. And that's why we rely so heavily on your generosity and your funding. And please, if you can, you go to patreon.com forward slash narrative, patreon.com forward slash narrative. You can subscribe there at various levels. We recommend the $10 a month level and help support us produce this program. In order to get the truth to you, we have to research the truth, find the truth, analyze the truth, make sure it's accurate, check it with sources, check it against data that's available, check it against anything that we can to disprove it, look at it from both perspectives. And then we get the truth to you, but we know that every time we do that, the powers that are on the other side, which we've discussed as being so formidable and so dangerous, are constantly trying to disrupt us by putting out bad information about us, negative and false information about us, by d damaging our ability to get advertisers on the show, damaging our ability to broadcast on different platforms. This is their intention, it's their goal to eliminate narrative because they know when they eliminate narrative, they eliminate the truth on what happened from 2016 onwards. So we are very careful and patient and we report the news as factually as we can. But our job here is to do that, is to tell you the news and we shall continue to do that. And at the end of the day, there is a, a, a responsibility that comes with all of this. It's not one necessarily we chose, or I chose, it just, this is the way things happen. I'm a journalist. I tell the story the way I see it, and I've never done that any differently. It just so happens that I happen to put myself in on the, covering this particular story with an independent outlet that had no restrictions. That has been the only reason I've been able to get the story out to you so far. And I hope I can continue to do that with your support. We really do need your support. Please go to patreon.com forward slash narrative. Thank you for being here tonight. We shall see you again. Maybe not next week, but we might do a Q&A next week with the members and subscribers. And then we really are meant to have our little summer break here, which is really about repositioning for next fall. But as the news demands, we'll keep showing up with news because that's what we're here for. Hope you have a great night tonight. Beautiful having good weather out there, isn't it? One day you'll tell the story of autocrats, crooks, and kings who came for our freedom. A story of citizens who stood up to tyranny and won. The people prevailed and renewed an old vow to a more perfect union. And that was just the beginning. The story continues. Narrative. Where truth lives. Every minute of Narrative's reporting, every story that we break is made possible by our patrons. You too can become a patron by joining at patreon.com forward slash narratives. Narrative, where truth lives.